this bus stop, uh, I spent countless hours sitting on that bench. Uh, but not once did I ever get on a bus. Um, that bus stop served as a classroom for me. It was a classroom in which I learned the history of East Austin, the challenges that come with poverty. I learned about the neighbors in the community. I learned a lot of things just sitting there. Uh, my teacher was a lady, an elderly lady named Miss Ruby. Miss Ruby had lived in the neighborhood most of her life. Um, she saw the corner in which this bus stop sits in all of its glory, once a hub of minority-owned businesses. She saw individuals move into the community and individuals move out of the community. She saw churches move into the community and saw those same churches then move out. She was there when the, the businesses began to leave. And she was also there when drugs and prostitution came to the corner. If you wanted to learn about the community, you had to go to that bus stop and learn from Miss Ruby because Miss Ruby was the community historian. Not only was she uh, my teacher, but in a lot of ways she became a mother figure to me and even a grandmother figure to my children. Um, she was quick to call me out when I was doing something wrong, as only she could. But she was also one of my greatest encouragers. She was an advocate for me, a bridge builder of sorts. If I needed to get to know somebody, generally Ruby was the one that made that connection for me. She loved my kids. Um, she sat on that bus stop as I unsuccessfully tried to teach my daughter how to ride a bike. She told me everything I was doing wrong, but kept telling Cambria, you're doing a great job. She, um, like my own grandmother, always asked Cambria, anytime she saw her, what are you learning in school? And are you giving it your best? Most of the time as we sat there on that bus stop, Miss Ruby wanted to talk about anything but herself. But one summer day with triple degree, digit degrees temperature, she began to open up about her story. She shared that for over a decade, she had been living in homelessness. She shared that most nights she slept under the awning of the community center. She opened up about her addiction to crack cocaine. She shared with me that for most of her life, her only source of income was through prostitution. But as she got older, no one wanted her anymore. She told me how she left home as a teen, and she showed me the cigarette burns her mom had inflicted upon her. She shared that she was tired of the life that she was living. And she knew that the only way out 
was with God's help. Miss Ruby and I, uh, we talked quite a bit about faith. It wasn't uncommon for her to um, take a verse and throw it at me, um, quote a verse at me when I was doing something wrong. And it wasn't uncommon for her to give me a verse to me when I needed encouragement. But this conversation was quite a bit different than our other conversations about faith. It had become personal, and she became transparent. And as we talked, she began to, to weep, to cry. And, and, and as we continued to talk, I finally just asked her. I said, Miss Ruby, you're tired of this life. You want more for yourself. You love Jesus. What is holding you back? She paused for a moment, began crying more and more. And after a minute or so, she looked at me and she said, I guess I love crack more than I love Jesus. And I think there are a lot of us in the church that live our lives like Ruby. We are walking through life seemingly bound and determined to make the same mistakes, commit the same sins over and over again. And it's not as if we want this life, this life that is full of guilt and shame, having to carry that day in and day out. We don't want it, but we've become accustomed to it, accustomed to the struggle, accustomed to the pain that comes with guilt and shame. While we might believe in a transformed life, we don't believe that it's possible for us. Many of us are living in that, what writers call struggle theology. A theology that says we're destined to always sin and only occasionally get a win over that sin. Maybe it's like this. Um, I remember having a conversation with a woman who, at one point in her life, had been living in an abusive relationship. The first time he hit her, she said, it's just a one-time thing. It's not going to happen again. But it did. And then it happened again and again and again. Eventually, it got so bad that the man that was hitting her had her convinced that everything that she was experiencing was her fault. The broken bones, the bruises, the fractured cheekbone, it wasn't his fault. She believed it was because she did something wrong. And as it happened over and over again, the victim began to accept her fate, denying that there was a way out even though she knew it was wrong, even though she knew she wanted a way out. She settled for a reality that was void of love and void of life. And I wonder if struggle theology is a bit like an abusive relationship, an idea that we have an obligation to a sinful nature we come to accept those bruises that come with, shield, with uh, blame and guilt. And eventually, we accept it 
embracing that as a reality. And maybe we even feel as if we deserve it. Though this doesn't have to be our reality. We don't have to live a life where we commit the same sins over and over again, day in and day out. We have a way out of that sin. Christ's death and his resurrection, we oftentimes talk about how it is a means of forgiveness for us. And it is that, but it wasn't meant to be solely that. It was also meant to give us a pathway out of sin. I used to think that um, the disciples, that they had it easy when it came to avoiding sin. They got to hang out with Jesus. And I mean, really, how hard is it to not sin when you have Jesus right by your side? And as a kid, I would imagine Peter, you know, maybe he was getting ready to, to hit one of the other disciples and Jesus would just look over at him and like, no, no, Peter, I've taught you better than that. That's what I used to think. But I'm thinking differently now. I mean, sure, they got to sit at Jesus' feet, learning the ways of God, seeing Christ's model, those out. But it wasn't until Jesus left that they began to understand that there was a way out of sin. And it wasn't until Jesus left that they truly understood his righteousness. They probably uh, didn't fully understand what Jesus was talking about in John 16, 7 through 11, when Jesus said, But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove to the world to be, prove to the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. When I go, I will send the advocate, or the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will prove or convict the world of sin. When he comes, he will convince the world of my righteousness, but only when he comes. It wasn't until the disciples received the Spirit that they had the ability to know and be convicted of sin. Likewise, it wasn't until Jesus left, even though they spent three or so years with him, that they fully had the ability to understand the righteousness of Christ. They had to wait for the Spirit. We have the Spirit at day one. The Holy Spirit plays many roles in a believer's life. The Spirit prompts us to love God, not because we benefit from it, but simply because God is God. Last week we learned that the Spirit gives us an appetite for God's Word and for the ways of Jesus. Another role the Spirit plays in our own lives is the Spirit convicts us of sin and convinces us of Jesus' righteousness. When this whole sermon series 
played out when they were planning that, I was out of town. Steve came into my office and said, hey, you're going to be preaching on sin and conviction. I was a little bit ticked. Um, I'm the outreach pastor. I like talking about missions and evangelism, about advocating for the poor and loving our neighbor. They should have given the sin and conviction to the discipleship pastor, not me. Uh, But as I begin to pray and study for this morning, my perspective on this topic began to change. When we look at the righteousness of God and we compare that to ourselves, it can be extremely overwhelming. And none of us, none of us like to experience conviction. None of us really like to talk about it. But those two things shouldn't be seen as a negative in the life of a believer. Rather, we should be grateful that the Spirit plays this role in our lives. Because after all, both are a gift. From elementary school uh, through my junior year of high school, um, countless teachers, administrators in schools, they would tell me about my permanent record. And I never saw that record, and I don't know if it was a file that hung in a file cabinet somewhere or if it was a file that was on a computer hard drive. All I knew is that I heard, this is going on your permanent record, and I heard it a lot. Um, I was in the principal's office quite a bit. Um, No joke. They had my mom's work number on speed dial. Um, But it got so bad The principal didn't have time anymore, Um, and so they eventually said, you're now going to have to meet weekly with the school's resource officer. Um, Officer Barnett, she was a police officer. She was assigned to my elementary school for the safety and the welfare of all of its students, and weekly, I had to go in and check in with her. Most of fifth grade and all of sixth grade, this was a weekly event, and I hated it every time. When I transitioned from elementary school into junior high school, I thought I was going to be done with her. I was looking forward to seventh grade, primarily for the reason that I would no longer have to meet with Officer Barnett. But first day of seventh grade, walked in, and there she was. Smiling at me. And I don't know if I was the reason. I hope not. She followed me from elementary school to middle school, then on to high school. So weekly check-ins, they, uh, they became something I just got accustomed to. Besides the, uh, the check-ins, Officer Barnett seemingly followed me around school. If I was in class, goofing off, not paying attention, I'd hear a knock at the door. And as I looked out the little window there in the door, she'd be looking at me. She'd give me a glare. And that's all it took. I sat up, pulled out my books, and started paying attention. In junior high school, in the cafeteria one day at lunch, I had an orange. This would be a great idea. Let me throw it at somebody across the room. So as I stood up and got ready to launch it, I saw Officer Barnett out of the corner of my eye. And so I turned to her, and she just looked at me, shook her head no. I sat back down. In high school, 
in high school, right after I got my driver's license, I'm going to skip school for the rest of the day. On the way out to the parking lot, I hear Bo Hamner. That's all it took. Turned around, went back to class. Didn't even acknowledge her. Just went back. When I did find myself in the principal's office, she always came in. And she'd always say the same type of thing. Bo, you are capable of more. You can do better. Make the right decisions. And at the time, I hated her glares. I hated her looks. I hated when she came in to tell me something that I didn't really want to hear. But as I look back at that now, she kept me from making a lot of bad decisions. Eventually, her words, I began to believe that I could become better. Similarly, the Holy Spirit has the ability to convict us of sin before we fall into temptation. And also convince us that we can become more and more like Christ each day. And I said the Holy Spirit has the ability to do those things. Because ultimately, we have to decide, am I going to be obedient to what the Spirit is telling me? Years ago in college, um, for one of my uh, Western theology classes, I had to read a book titled Holiness for Ordinary People. It's a thin book. I can't remember the author's name. But what I do remember, I'm just kidding about that. I remember the author's name. Um, what I do remember is that this book... Um, began to teach me about the ways the Holy Spirit invests in my life. Um, at the time, I'd only been a Christ follower for a handful of years, and I was still wrestling with sin in certain areas of my life, um, and, I, and I just seemingly couldn't get over them. And uh, Keith pointed out that when it came to overcoming sin in his own life, there were generally three stages that he went through. The first stage was the denial stage. The Holy Spirit prompts an individual, but the individual refuses to acknowledge that they have a problem. And it might be because that individual sees another Christian, another Christ follower, and they say, well, that person's doing it. It's okay for me too. Or maybe they just chalk it up as something, this is just human nature. Um, the second stage was delay. An individual is convicted by the Holy Spirit. They are aware of it. They know they need to do something about it. But they say, eventually I'm going to get to that. Or I'll take care of that on down the road. The third stage, the stage that the author says, that Keith said we all need to get to, is the stage of obedience. The stage where we surrender that sin over to God, asking him to transform us, and moving forward in our journey towards faith. I believe many of us struggle with sin because we live in those first two stages. The stage of denial and the stage of delay. 
The Spirit is working hard to convict us and convince us where we're doing all that we can to avoid obedience to the Spirit. Many of you are familiar with uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13, in which Paul writes, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. There will always be temptation waiting for us. But those temptations, that sin, it's not something that you uniquely experience. Someone somewhere has experienced that same temptation of that sin. And someone somewhere has overcome that temptation and sin. And more so, as Paul points out, God will always provide a way out. And more often than not, that way out is through the Spirit. In Romans um, 8, 5 through 11, Paul, again, speaks of two types of individuals when he writes, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you first individual that Paul speaks about is a person who is controlled by the flesh or sinful desires. They don't think about what the Spirit thinks about. They don't care what the Spirit cares about. They're controlled only by their desires. And in verse 9, Paul, he even seems to indicate that there might be those in the church who think they're following Christ, but because they refuse to be obedient to the Spirit's prompting, are not of the Spirit. They are hostile to God because they're unwilling to submit to God's commands. The second person Paul speaks about is the person who is led by the Spirit. This person listens to the Spirit. This person desires what the Spirit desires. This person lives in the realm of the Spirit. This person hasn't reached perfection. But each day, they're examining their lives, listening to the Spirit, saying, what changes do I need to make in my own life? One refuses to be obedient. 
The other is always seeking ways that he or she can become more obedient to the Spirit. On that day, uh, there at the bus stop, in the midst of tears, I believe that moment was a Holy Spirit moment in Ruby's life. Her recognizing the fact that she loved crack more than Jesus, I don't think she would have came to that realization on her own. And it certainly wasn't because of something that I had said. She had moved beyond guilt and had moved into remorse. And I wish I could say that on that day that Miss Ruby completely surrendered her life to Christ. It didn't happen that way. But it was the beginning of her journey towards obedience. Last time we spoke, um, Miss Ruby was off the streets. And she was no longer dependent upon drugs. For the first time in a long time, Miss Ruby was living in the realm of the Spirit. This morning, um, I want us to think about our own lives. Like Miss Ruby, many of us have that one thing. We might not say it, but we love that one thing more than we love Jesus. And probably, it's probably not going to be drug addiction for all of us. It might be for some. That one thing might be something that is the byproduct of success. It might even be success itself. It could be something that you've been living with most of your life, but you've never given it to God. 